Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, calling in over the phone from an area north of Seattle, is my guest, Emily Tomkinson. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thanks, Richard. We have, Emily and I have been exchanging Facebook messages since 2017, about three years, and she's felt safe enough to open up to me with some of her journey, and I really respect Emily, and and, and now she feels comfortable doing a podcast. This podcast will come out roughly um, the third week of September, just um, a housekeeping thing. I've been plugging my book that is coming out about the same time, encourage all of our listeners to get the book. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, the forward by Steve Young. It's meant to be supportive of our church, our leaders, our doctrine, and also supportive of LGBTQ members, um, those that stay in the church, and also trying to create more common ground with those that step away, since we are the same human family. And um, we've been getting really good reviews on Amazon from some of you that have bought the book, probably the Kindle version. Really grateful for that. The book is at Siegel Book. For those of you that live near Siegel Book and continue to update our listeners on where it's available, but grateful for those of you that are buying the book. And the book is really like the podcast, trying to bring voice to people like Emily, our LGBTQ friends, because they're the ones we're really trying to listen from. But as way of introduction, Emily is 40. She is lesbian. She no longer is active in the church. She is married to a woman. Um, her wife's name is Jess. They're the parents of twin nine-year-olds. Emily grew up in Provo, Utah, Provo High, um, spent some time, a couple years at UVU, has a career in tech. Um, Emily was active in the church um, until about until her 20s and I, uh, maybe until 30, and then has stepped away from the church. And those of you that have been listening know that I'm fine doing podcasts with people that have stepped away from the church. And the reason why is I'm trying to bring common ground to people and their differences. Um, and Emily is very respectful of the church. And so even though she doesn't participate in the church and the church didn't work for her, um, it's still a podcast about how we can find common ground. Many of you have family members in and out of the church or friends in and out of the church, or you're a local leader and some of the people you serve are not active in the church. So I just think we're the same human family, and it's wonderful to host stories like Emily's. And so this is, um, how's that for an introduction, Emily? <laughs> That's pretty good. I, I forgot to let you know I also served a mission in Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, what states did you serve in? Were you in Tennessee, or did you have other states around there? There, It was East Tennessee, as well as Virginia, Kentucky. Arkansas and Georgia, if I remember correctly. It was like teeny tiny corners of of each of those states and the eastern half of Tennessee. Thank you for your service. Uh, a lot of yeah. people's lives are better off. I feel pretty confident saying that, and I think you would agree with that. I, I've always felt like people that have stepped away from the church, we should always thank them for the time and the financial contributions and the service they've given to the church. The church is better off because of you, Emily, and maybe more importantly, I've 
people are better off because of you with your mission and your service. And, and my guess is that continues with the people in your circle. Um, so thank you for your service. I have never been yeah, to Eastern yeah. Tennessee, so that's one part of the country I've never been. Uh, talk about anything else from a bio standpoint. Nope. Nope. Let's start with, like we do in a lot of these podcasts, start with just your what it felt like to be in high school in your 20s. And um, I, Emily identifies as lesbian, so we'll continue to call it Emily lesbian. Um, we won't say that like every paragraph of the podcast, but I just want to get the <laughs> um, Emily's sexual orientation out there for our listeners and the label she takes on. But just start to tell us your story, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the very first time I remember feeling these feelings of attraction towards, towards girls was when I was about um, 13. I remember it was summer break and I was looking through my yearbook and I came across a picture of a girl who I had become friends with and I suddenly felt these feelings welling up inside of me of like being attracted to her and it it scared me. It 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 really shocked me. Um and I just said, Oh man, I gotta push that down. <laughs> I really have to push that down. It was it it really it really came as a surprise to me. Um and then as I went through high school, what I found through high school and through my early 20s, um, every once in a while I would become friends with a girl and I would just really be very emotionally attracted to this person. I wanted to spend all of my time with them. I looked up to them. I was so grateful to be their friend. And I just, I just wanted to be with them all the time. And, um, <clears throat> what happened, uh, uh, a couple of times, um, I got too close and I, I think the friend may have sensed it and they pulled away. And the interesting thing is that that was devastating for me. Um, it honestly was as if it was a breakup looking back on it now at the time i i didn't i didn't know that at the time i i didn't know that i basically had a crush on this girl um and so and so it left me with a lot of really really confused feelings um it it's it's just so interesting looking back on it now i remember um, when I was about 18, I was talking with one of my best friends. He, he and I are still great friends today. And I was sharing with him these experiences that I'd had in high school. And I turned to him and I said, you know, if I wasn't Mormon, I think I'd be gay. And I look back on that now. And I just spent so many years with being gay or lesbian just wasn't even an option it just wasn't even like 
like I said, when I was 13 and I had those feelings and as soon as they came, I just went, whoa, 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 no, no, that's not allowed. Stop it. And, um, I've, I look back and I, I wish that I could have had a different perspective on things. The world was a different place then. It was very different 20 years ago than it is now. Um, so I don't necessarily blame anyone for that. I, I'm grateful that teenagers today do have a little bit more acceptance when they have those feelings, but I'm sure that there are still some teenagers out there who have these feelings and, and just don't know what to do with them. Um, so, so yeah, so that pattern continued into my twenties of like, becoming friends with a girl and then like having these strong feelings and then having things fall apart and just being devastated. And, um, it wasn't until I, until I was about 30 that I finally had this realization that, you know what, I've, I, I like girls and probably shouldn't bury those feelings anymore. So that's, kind of a perspective of what things felt like for me as a teenager and in my, in my early twenties. Thanks for being so honest and vulnerable, Emily, pretty tender topic. And how, how do you, if if friendships are pretty normal, um, friendships between men and men are pretty normal and women and women are pretty normal. um, It, and it sounds like these friendships were pretty normal, but at some point, Mm -hmm. can you just describe sort of where the sexual orientation, if, if possible, where the sexual orientation sort of entered the friendship and then it, and then it became a situation where your girlfriend pulled away because of that, I guess. Yeah, I think I think I didn't know what to do with those feelings. That's honest. And so they, they translated into this kind of obsessiveness and clinginess. And so that resulted in the friend pulling away. Um, I, to be clear, like in the moment, I did not have like sexual drive towards these people. I, I just had this very strong emotional connection and I've heard a very similar stories from my lesbian friends. So I think just in the way that men and women develop sexually, things might move along differently. Um, but it was much more like, it, I would even at times I would even like be listening to a, like a love song and I would, think of them while I was listening to that love song but I didn't necessarily like want to do anything with them it was just this like obsessiveness like a really strong crush if that makes sense that's honest and that does make sense and it's helpful for our listeners some that may be walking the same road you've walked and it's helpful for them did you have the same sort of friendships with men that became more more serious in the sense, I don't know if you just use the word clinging or dependent, but I don't want to misuse the words you use, but did that happen with men? 
No, I never, I never had the same type of, I never had that same scenario play out with a man. No. Yeah. And that's, do what, what, if any of these friends, uh, this is a tender question. If any of these friends, why, what did they feel that caused them to pull away? I, I think they felt smothered. Um, I think also sometimes I saw more in the friendship than they did. So for them, it was just a natural, like moving on to other things. But I wasn't ready. Like in high school, you make friends all the time. You, you know, your friends come and go. Um, and for a normal friendship, that's not a big deal. But when one person is like grappling with these strong feelings, um, it can be, it can be really difficult. That's that's helpful, and I'm asking kind of tender questions, so thanks for being willing to answer some of these. Uh, just, yeah. Just keep telling your story of, um, talk about your emotional health and just um, any journey. You're, I usually ask most guests if they've been suicidal or if they've had a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in my early 20s, I... I did attempt suicide um, when I was 24, I think it was. And I mean, it's, it, it was, honestly, it was about a girl and it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to say that, but, but it was, it was this same scenario that had already played out a few times before and it happened again and I felt like I there there just there must be something wrong with me and um I just felt totally defeated um I recently was reading back on some journal entries and uh, from from that time and one of the things that I said before I, like, right before this all happened was that I was, I was just tired. I was so emotionally bent and tired. And I was so sad because I'd had this friend who I really cared about so much. And then things went south and it just, it just made me feel broken. Um, and I know that deep down inside, I I always knew, I always knew that I liked girls, but I, I just couldn't let it be true. And, um, and so I, I did, I, I took a bottle of pills and, um, and then pretty soon thereafter, I went to the ER because I panicked and, um, and it was a really, really scary experience. And it was scary enough that I said, okay, I'll never do that again. Um, I survived it and, um, my family was there for me. Um, 
but I think everybody was kind of just like, well, what's, what's wrong with Emily? <laughs> and I couldn't really tell anybody. I really couldn't tell anybody because it was so shameful that it was just over this friendship, you know? Um, and, but I, I've never been in that place ever again because it was such a scary experience for me. Um, but I do remember having a conversation with a friend shortly after that happened and starting to really feel these, these feelings really well up inside the feeling that I, that I might be gay and just not knowing what to do about it. And I, I wish that I had had the courage to tell, tell my friend this at the time. I remember trying so hard to spit the words out and I just, I just couldn't do it. And this, this was, uh, this was not a friend that I, that I had a crush on or any, this was another, another friend. Um, but I knew, I always knew, I just, I just couldn't, I just, it just, just couldn't get myself to actually come out and say it until I was about 30. Um, and do you want me to kind of continue with the story or? Yeah, let me just, um, on behalf of our listeners, that was really brave, Emily. Yeah. Really brave of you to share that with us. We're so glad you're alive. Um, our Emily, as I, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning, but Emily um, asked before we recorded that we start with prayer. Um, I offered that prayer, and we just both hope and pray that this podcast will be helpful for you, our listeners, as Emily bravely sh- uh, opens up and shares her story. But I wrote down some of the words you used to describe um, how you felt during that time, totally deflated sad, tired, broken, shameful. And I just, I recognize that, you know, this part of you um, that you couldn't talk about, didn't want to talk about, didn't want it to be part of you, just led to all these feelings. And I've always felt like, you know, helping people come out and help, you know, I don't think talking about LGBTQ or sharing a podcast like this is going to make more people LGBTQ, Emily, but I think what it does is help people to decrease the shame and the self-loathing and hating this part about them so that then they're less likely to have a suicide attempt. They're more likely to talk about it with someone because it sounds like you want to, and they're more likely just to make more thoughtful decisions as they move forward. And so I think... I, I think Satan's real, um, but I think one of his greatest tools is, is to cause you to feel shame and some of these things. Um, and you had no way to navigate this. You were doing the very best you can, so there's no fault for you. Um, I have one quote I share pretty consistently on the podcast when people talk about suicide. Um, I didn't lose you, did I, Emily? No, no, okay. I'm here. Sorry, I just, I just was taking a drink of water. I just heard a different sound. Sometimes I accidentally hang up on people, but I'll read this. Um, <laughs> Brene Brown has said that not belonging or physiological isolation 
is the most terrifying and destructive feeling a person can experience. It's not the mm-hmm. same as being alone. It's a feeling one that's locked out of the possibility of human connection and powerless to change the situation. Um, in the extreme, physiological oscillation can lead to a sense of hopelessness and desperation. People who would do almost anything to escape the combination of condemned isolation and powerlessness. So what do people like me do or your, or your friends or family? We embrace, we value, empathize. And we tell people like you they belong with us. Um, as I may have mentioned, Emily has um, active LDS parents that are doing a good job. It's been a journey like all parents. She has um, six siblings. So she comes from a very active family. Um, I'm really glad that you shared that experience with us. Um, what, would you, what would you say now to people that are suicidal? I would, I would say, that's a good question. The thing that comes to mind is tell me more, not necessarily tell me more about why you want to kill yourself, but what, what are you feeling? Like I'm here, no judgment at all. Just I'm here for you. I love you. What, what do you need? How can I help you? Um, because I, I think telling that person, like, I mean, obviously you don't want them to do it, but just saying like, no, don't do it. That's not what they need to hear. They, they need to be listened to and they need to be loved. Um, so no matter what you say to me right now, I love you. You know, what is it that's on your heart and your mind and how can I help? I like your answer. And it's a lot of just listening. That's a great answer. Yeah. Um, I'm in this space because of the suicide of a of a gay Latter-day Saint young man at high school age. This book and all the proceeds are dedicated to his memorial scholarship. I think all of us can agree as the same human family that um, we want to do everything we can to help people not choose to die by suicide. And we're so grateful you're alive. And I think as LDS parents, we have this hope that all of our children will be active in the church, marrying the temple. Um, but I think the reality of a lot of family situations, that doesn't happen. And I think as parents, we just need to leave it at the Savior's feet and control things that we can control. And that's keeping our family members alive and and around us. and and close together. And to me, that's what our church teaches is strong family relationships. So um, I, I just recognize that, you know, you have a harder road than our straight members do. And I just recognize that many of our gay and lesbian members, I don't invite them to go down this road, but if they, if they self-determine um, or receive personal revelation that this is their path, I'll just honor that. Um, and leave it at the Savior's feet and and say, what can I do? Well, I can continue to extend kindness and empathy and understanding and and just try to support you the best way I can. I think it's a false dichotomy that to fully love and follow God, I need to stop loving some of his children. And Mm -hmm. um, to me, the commandment is love the Lord with all thy heart and love thy neighbor as thyself. And there's no conditions on that. So I just see you as my neighbor that because you're 
a daughter of heavenly parents, you're worthy of my love and support and friendship. And that's just the way I navigate this. I'm not really speaking to you, Emily, because <laughs> I think you know that <laughs> just listeners that may be listening for the first time about this moderator who's an all-in fully believing Mormon supporting, I guess I'm a Latter-day Saint now, fully supporting our church and and trying to support wonderful people like you, Emily, and your good wife, Jess. Um, talk about um, being, uh, unless you want to go talk any more about suicide, let's move on and just talk about, Yeah. Um, you were married to a man. Share with our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, being, being raised as a, as a woman in the church, um, you really are taught that the, one of your, one of your ultimate goals in life is to find a spouse, to find a husband, to get married, settle down and have children. And so that is what I wanted. And, um, it's interesting because I, I really didn't date all through high school. I, I wanted to date. I just, boys didn't ask me out. Um, and then in my 20s, I still, I wanted to date and I, and I tried to put myself out there, but I just didn't get asked out on dates. And I understand why now I'm, I, 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 not, not to say that I wasn't attractive, but I wasn't sending out that signal, if that makes sense. Um, it, it makes sense to me now why that was the case. Um, but I, when I was in my late twenties, I finally said, well, boys aren't asking me out. So I'm just going to have to go ask some boys out <laughs> and I'm just going to have to take this into my own hands because I need to get married. And so I did meet someone. Um, I only, I only dated a couple of people. My ex-husband was like the second person I ever I ever dated and um he and I um we there there was a strong physical attraction between us um we ended up getting married civilly um and then we were sealed in the temple a year later um but I realized um that um so we were we were married in 2008. Is that right? Yes. We were married in 2008, and I came out of the closet like a year and a half later. And when I came out, I realized that I had married him for all the wrong reasons. Um, I had finally found someone who found me attractive, and I was worried that I would never find that ever again. Um, I was. I was afraid of what if I don't get married? Like I, I really need to get married. And, and so I felt that pressure to get married. It's difficult because I, I did love him. I, he was, he was a really good friend. Um, and, and I did love him. And so the process of leaving was actually a really, really difficult process. But I knew I just, I had this experience. What, what happened was I, I, I met 
someone, I met a girl who I found myself attracted to. And this was like a year and a half after I had gotten married. And I just, I, in my head and in my heart, I was just like, oh no, not again. Like I thought that this was not going to happen again because I'm, I'm married to a man. This, this isn't supposed to happen. Um, but, um, I, this particular person was approachable enough and she was kind of like a life coach to me. Um, so I actually had the courage to basically go to her eventually and say, I think I'm, I think I might be gay. Like, I think, I think I said, I think I might be bi because I was having these feelings and she was totally open and accepting and loving of me in that moment. And she said, she said, Oh honey, I could have told you that months ago. And um, she said, so what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I don't think I should bury these feelings anymore. And she said, yeah, I don't think you should either. And I actually went home that, that very night and I talked to my ex-husband and I said, Hey, I, I like girls and I don't know what I'm going to do about it but I don't feel like I should bury these feelings anymore. And I was shocked because he said, I agree. I don't think you should bury the feelings either. And he said, I always suspected just based off of some of the stories you've told me about your like past friendships. And he was, he was very, um, very loving through the whole process. Um, I, our, our divorce was peaceful and we, 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 it was difficult at times. It was, at first I really didn't know if, if I was even going to act on these feelings, right? Like I didn't, I, I knew that I liked girls, but I didn't necessarily know if I necessarily wanted to like go out and date girls. But it was like, once I was comfortable enough saying I like girls, all of these pent up feelings from so many years just, just started to spill out. And I felt so much freedom and love for myself that I had never felt before. And I just knew that um, it was okay. Like I like girls, I'm, I'm gay and, and that's okay. And um, I, I really did, but I, but I still didn't know what I was going to do. And I remember I was talking to a friend and just, just so you're aware, like I never, I never had any romantic relations with anyone before I, before my husband and I split before we separated. Like we, we stayed together for a year after I had this whole coming out process. We stayed together for a whole year because I wasn't, I just didn't, I just wasn't sure what to do. But I, but I remember talking to a friend and kind of venting to her, like, I just don't know what to do. And she said, she said, imagine you, you had a crystal ball. You could have anything you wanted. What do you want? Like, imagine you, you could have anything you wanted. And my answer was immediate. I said, I want to be with a woman 
I want, I want to be married to a woman. Like I, I want to be in a relationship with a woman. And that was just one of the affirmations that I received that, you know what, your, your past is, is not with this man. You, you have a separate path that will bring you more happiness and it will bring him more happiness because you will not be able to love him the way that you would love a woman. And so we ended up separating and then um, shortly thereafter, I started dating women. Um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of how, how that went. That's a really honest part of your story, Emily. And I just honor everybody's story. Um, talk, talk about, you said there was a physical attraction to this, um, relationship with your former husband. Um, if someone heard that and said, well, how can you have a physical attraction and identify as lesbian? Help, help, any thoughts for our listeners? Um, I think, I think sexual fluidity was definitely in play there. Um, I, I do think that it's, for some people, it, I mean, some people are bisexual. For, for some people, you can be attracted to both genders. I identify as lesbian because I know that I'm much happier with women. But um, the human body, like physical attraction is, is very chemical. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, when I, when I was in Utah, I moved to Seattle um, about seven years ago. But when I was still in Utah and I was dating women, nearly every woman that I dated had been married to a man and then came out of the closet. And I think that they're, and they had all been Mormon or LDS. And there's just, like I said, there's just this strong message that is driven into you as a girl growing up in the church. You will marry a man, you will have children. And um, it's hard to, it's hard to get away from that. I, I think that, a, a woman, I think that it's easier for gay or lesbian women to be attracted to men than it is for a gay man to be physically and sexually attracted to a woman. There's no science behind that. <laughs> That's just my opinion. But based off of my experience and what I've seen and the people that I've known, that, that's one thing, one of my opinions. And this is a podcast with just everybody sharing their story. We're, and so um, I just honor everything you said. Um, how do you feel about um, mixed orientation marriages that didn't work for you? Um, how do you feel about those for other people? And do you believe all of those will eventually fail? Or do you believe some of those can and will be successful? You know, I feel like I feel like our creator 
has a unique path for each and every one of us. So there are maybe some people who a mixed orientation marriage could work for them. Um, I think it's risky. I think, I think it's really risky. And those people who are able to make it work, um, I think they're very, very special. Um, but I think everybody has their unique path and it's just really important that people listen to their inner voice. Um, and, you know, the LDS people would say that you listen to the Holy Ghost and follow those promptings to, to really listen to that. I, I've listened to several episodes of the podcast and one thing that has that I've been impressed by is just how often people say, you know, I prayed to Heavenly Father and I got the prompting that I was supposed to do X, Y, or Z. And for some people that meant a mixed orientation marriage and for some people that meant dating someone of the same sex or marrying someone of the same sex. I think as long as you're listening to that voice, that guide, and you were consistently checking in with it and just really checking it and making sure, then it's up to you. It's your journey. It's your path. I uh, really like what you said. And I think it takes a lot of maturity to, on your part, to, you were in a mixed orientation marriage and you went in that with the very best efforts to make that work. And it didn't work. So it would be very easy for you to to justify or sort of validate your own position to say all of those are fake, all of those will fail. And I just recognize the maturity of you and the grace you're offering to our listeners and to people in mixed orientation marriages that those can and do work. And it's not my job to take my story and make it everybody's story. But, and it's also, so there's a lot of really thoughtful maturity. I'm just going to read a I've got my physical book in front of me. I've ne- it's been I've never done this before in a podcast. I actually, read from my physical book. <laughs> mm. um, while the church doesn't encourage this road, meaning a mixed orientation marriage, and I'm on page two sixty four, and some of these marriages fail. Mixed orientation marriages can and do work for some. We should hope they succeed. Before I stepped in this space, the only mixed orientation marriages I was aware of were those that failed. I had falsely concluded from my limited sample size and understanding that all mixed orientation marriage failed. It was only after interviewing several couples in mixed orientation marriages that my conclusion changed. I actually felt a rebuke from the spirit during one of these interviews. Now I understand these marriages can be beautiful and authentic love stories in which honesty, communication, vulnerability, power of and commitment to eternal covenants and common Eternal goals uh, create a strong and healthy foundation. Um, I also assume my awareness successful moms or mixed orientation marriages is limited as there's likely many couples who are not sharing this part of their lives with others, and there should be no requirement to do so. And then I go on, I don't want to read the whole chapter of building some um, understanding when a mixed orientation marriage fails and and I read, I write this, we sometimes hear of a spouse in a mixed orientation marriage and refer to them as the hero. Um, I'm not sure any of us should judge who is more or less of a hero. 
Um, I'm not sure any of us understand the complexities of another marriage to elevate one spouse over the other. Um, But then I talk further in this chapter about the church's stance where they don't recommend this. And the church has been very clear, but if, um, and there are some that fail and we should just, you know, support those couples and not try to judge either one person for making it fail. And, and just, so I've tried to write this chapter the very best way I can, because I've prayed about it as much as any chapter to try to, and to try to create space. We don't want any marriage to fail, but when it fails, I don't want to point my finger at you or your ex-husband say it's your fault or his fault. Sometimes we try to do that. It keeps everything in a nice tidy box for us. And if we can simply explain away why another person's marriage failed, perhaps it doesn't make us look inward and see what we need to do and improve our own marriage or keeps us emotionally safe. So I hope, listeners, that when we are aware of any marriage that fails, that we just try to be kind to both spouses. Um, and because um, and, I think that's what Heavenly Father wants us to do as much as possible. So I... Yeah. I I just think you've done the very best you can and you've always wanted to be married to a man and have a family and live the dream. You taught that on your mission in Tennessee. So why wouldn't you, you had some, Mm -hmm. you had, I love that you proactively started the date. I think that's really cool. Emily Um, gives me an insight to your character and, and um, I love the way you just said, I'm going to do the very best I can and, and tried that. And, and it sounds like you, you know, you and your husband did the very best you could. And so we just continue to extend kindness and grace to you as you make your way forward. Um, so, and yeah. we, so, you know, tell, I've just done a yeah, bunch I more have, talking I, than I, I usually have a quick do. You, thought, yeah. You share some thoughts or anything you're uncomfortable with, with, I said, you want to bring, come back to. Yeah. I, I just, I just had a quick thought follow up on what you said just now about mixed orientation marriages and and as you were reading um from your book i one of the lessons that i that i that i've learned is that any decisions that we make in our lives we should always make sure that they're based off of love and not fear um and so if there is a listener out there who's trying to figure out should they should they try a mixed orientation marriage? I would say just make sure you're not doing it from a place of fear because that's where I came from. I was, I was afraid of the consequences. If I didn't get married, I was afraid that I would, that I would never find love ever again. Um, so just make sure that, that, that you have love in mind when, when you're making those types of decision. I love that. Um, really, really love that. Making faith-based versus fear-based. Um, yes. sis- sister, yes, exactly. mm-hmm. my wife used to tell the YSAs and her YSAs, Simon, it's better to be single and wish you were married, rather be married and wish you were single. And there's so much cultural pressure to be married that I think mm-hmm. sometimes we do get caught up in the culture or we get based in fear-based decisions. This may be my only chance. And um, but I think faith-based decisions would be Heavenly Father's a plan for me. Um, if I go to the 40,000 foot level, that plan, he loves me. He's going to take care of me. 
I need to continue to stay close to him and make the very best decisions I can um, and know that he's got my back. And in the 40,000 eternal eternal perspective, everything's going to be okay. So I love that, Emily. Talk about um, Jess. Introduce your wife to our listeners. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, So... Jess and I met in the Seattle Women's Chorus, where we both sing. Um, I come from a very musical background, um, but she and I met and we hit it off pretty quickly. And um, I, I just knew pretty, pretty soon after she and I started to date, we both knew that we had found the the person. <laughs> It's really interesting because um, when I moved to Seattle, I um, I moved to Seattle strictly because I felt a very strong prompting that I needed to move to Seattle. Like my gut was telling me I needed to move to Seattle. Um, and I didn't know why. <laughs> I just knew. And... So I ended up packing up all my things and moving to Seattle and I was able to find a job once I got here and I had some family members who took me under their wing and let me, let me stay with them while I found my feet. But Jeff and I often joke that like, it was perfect timing. Like she and I didn't meet until I'd been here for a couple of years, but um, for the things that were happening in her life at the time and things that were happening in my life at the time, I, I I think that the universe really wanted me out here so that so that I could meet her. Um, we we do have uh, twins, so a boy and a girl. They're nine years old. Um, Jess carried them. She uh, in a in a previous marriage, um, they had a donor. Um, they're fantastic kids, um, and. Yeah, just is just she's so loving, she's so supportive, and she she was really excited when she found out that that I that I was previously Mormon, um, or that I was raised Mormon because um, she knew that Mormons were all about families, <laughs> and and she was really happy to know that that I was gonna that I was gonna bring this family spirit to to her and her kids and we actually have family night every week um we 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 play a game and and we someone gets to choose the treat so that's a tradition that i've brought along to our family um so yeah that's that's just in a nutshell she's she's wonderful and i'm so so grateful to have her in my life that's really cool. I'm just, I just love the fact that Jess saw um, and wanted in her heart a strong family and recognized your Mormon heritage, your Mormon experience, your service in the church. Um, that's part of something that was hardwired into you and would come to the marriage and part of, probably part of the reason she fell in love with you. And, and she's got these these kids. And of course she would want a wonderful companion to help raise these, these twins that are now your, their mother. 
and are helping to raise them in full mm-hmm. companionship. And that's just, to me, um, I reckon I, we all, you, me, and our listeners know your marriage is outside the teachings of our church, but I recognize from a pragmatic standpoint that you're, that the closeness of your family and the commitment of you and your spouse and children being raised in a home with two committed parents, they're committed to each other is, is great. And, um, um, and it just seems like our world would be so much better if every child was being raised in a family like yours with two committed parents um, that are deeply committed to their children. And um, I think a lot of, and some might debate me on that, that your family's not as strong a family or it's not the ideal situation, but I just leave all that at the Savior's feet. And and I want your family to succeed. I want your marriage to succeed. I don't re- wouldn't rejoice if your marriage didn't succeed. It wouldn't sort of validate my own position. Any two people that, you know, decide to go into a civil covenant or a covenant with God um, through a civil wedding, however they're looking at that, committing to each other, to me, I want those marriages to succeed. And I've learned to just be happy for your happiness. And it doesn't cost me anything as a committed Latter-day Saint. I don't feel I'm selling out our doctrine or condoning something out. I just feel like I'm extending the grace that my restored gospel has asked me to extend to all the human family as they go forward. Are you okay with all that or any thoughts to add to that? Um, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for, for holding that belief. Um, that, that means a lot that you would, have so much faith and trust in our marriage um, because yeah, we, we do our best. And I've, other than my own mother, I've never known a mother that is as amazing of a mother as Jess. Um, she loves those kids with all of her heart and she had to go through a lot in order to, in order to get pregnant and, and give birth that was quite the process for her. So, so yeah, I just thank you for being so loving and supportive of, of us and of the other LGBTQ families that are out there. And I, you're very kind. And I just honor your personal revelation. One of the, you know, we are built on a church that values personal revelation in the book. I talk about Elder Uchtdorf's quote that, um, Joseph Smith, we honor his personal revelation that we got. And in the book, he talks about Elder Uchtdorf in a conference talk honoring those that feel their path is outside the church. And and I think that's a fairly thoughtful quote that just tries to bring us together as the same human family and honors personal agency. But my personal revelation doesn't give me the ability to judge your personal revelation. And my and keeping my covenants doesn't give me the ability or give me the right to really judge, are you keeping your covenants? And so I just honor the personal revelation you're receiving, even if it's different than the personal revelation I've received or people that I know receive. I could say that you're being deceived by Satan and this is a sign of the last days, but I'm, I don't know enough about, um, I don't, know that I received personal revelation to judge 
to be able to say that about you. I do believe Satan's real, and I do believe he wants to separate us from God and cause us to make mm-hmm. bad decisions. But that doesn't mean I have the right to sort of um, take that belief and apply it to you. Um, I just feel like my job as a committed Latter-day Saint is to extend grace and mourn and comfort and bear and support you. So you kind of know all that, but that's just for our listeners, how I navigate this space. Um, And you may be okay with that listeners, or you may not be okay with that. It's just, it's a complicated space. And my goal in these podcasts and in the book and my personal ministry is not to have everybody agree with everything I say or a guest says, but just to have a conversation about really difficult topics that try to find common ground that bring us together so that people like Emily and Jess, we see them as, as two wonderful women doing the best they can with circumstances um, we don't face. Um, talk about parents. Uh, most of my guests have had parents that have, um, this is maybe 10 years this has been going on or eight years going on. And my guess is, your parents, like all LDS parents, have kind of gone through phases um, and are in a better spot now than they were the first day this happened or you came out to them. Um, just share with us anything you want to share about your parents or any, and maybe as a second question, any advice you'd like to give to LDS parents that are listening that have LGBTQ children? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I I extend a lot of um, grace to, to my parents and to my family, because when I, when I came out, it was a huge, um, it was part of a, of a massive transformation in my life, because like I said, I'd had this realization that I'd been making a lot of choices in my life based off of fear. And I'd been kind of on autopilot. Like I'd just been doing all of the things that I'd always been taught to do without really giving it much thought. And I kind of slammed on the brake and I just said, wait a minute, I need to make sure that I'm making decisions for myself. And so not only did I come out of the closet, but at that time I I stopped going to church. Um, My, like, that's when I started questioning whether or not I was going to remain married to the man I was married to at the time. So it was like this huge shift happened in me. And I think my whole family was kind of blindsided of like, what is going on with Emily? (laughs) Um, Like uh, there, there were just a lot of questions. and it was it was hard for me because here I was feeling free and feeling a sense of happiness like I had never felt before because I was finally accepting this part of myself. And my family was not on the same page at that time. And that was that was really, really difficult for me. Um, but I under I say that fully understanding why, because like I said, it was like this huge shock to them. Um, I mean, and that being said, my relationship with my family today is really good. 
it took time and it took effort from both sides because I, there were times where I got angry and I got aggressive and I got pushy with my family. And I regret that. I really regret that. Um, like just kind of trying to boss them into loving me and accepting me and being okay with, with this journey that I was on. That was not the right approach. Um, and so eventually I, you know, I've, I've been through, I've been through quite a bit of therapy (laughs) and therapy, therapy helped me to learn how to better communicate with my family to learn how to better communicate with my parents, um, to build bridges of understanding. And, um, and so by, by doing that, by coming from a place of, of love with them, I feel like my relation, I feel like my relationship with my family today is, is pretty strong, even though I'm in Seattle and they're all, most of my siblings are in Utah. I do have one sister who lives out in Virginia. Um, but I don't get to see them often. But when I do get to see them, I'm really so happy and so grateful. And we stay in touch through social media really well. So I have noticed that um, when I'm connected with my family and when I'm talking with them regularly, my emotional well-being is is much better like it's like i i can feel that my familial roots are when those are being nourished the the foundation of my whole life feels feels better so it was it was rough being kind of separated from my family for a while there but over the last few years that separation has I've come back together with my family I I feel like another reason I was prompted to move to Seattle was actually because when I moved to Seattle it it helped me appreciate my family even more it I I cherish the time that I do get to spend with them so it's been a journey from both sides I'd say that's if there's one type take away from from all of my rambling it is that my family has come a long way and I have also come a long way there has to be a bridge built and you you just you have to make sure that you're approaching things from a loving perspective getting angry about things getting pushy about things that's just not the way to go you've got to make sure that you're being loving and understanding that's a great segment and I've had a therapist talk about storming and that's sort of when the new reality becomes aware in a mm-hmm. family situation and there's kind of this storming period. And I don't know if that's a word that works for in every situation because that implies a lot of tension and a lot of, I'm thinking of dark clouds and wind and thunder because I'm thinking weather. But there's some of that that occurs when someone comes out or um, the realities of your situation become aware to the whole family. And I think the principles are communication and honesty and vulnerability. And um, you said some other really wonderful things. You said, I'm emotionally better when I'm connected with my family. 
And I just think we're wired for connection, Emily. And so we're not meant to be alone as members of the human family. So I love that you are connected to your family. You have a big family. I don't know how many nieces and nephews you have, but a lot, (laughs) a lot um, with that many siblings and your own two children. And, and I have to think your own two children are blessed by your parents that taught you wonderful parenting principles that you are teaching to your own children. And so if your parents are listening, you know, great job, parents. It's, you may have some days you wish you could do over, and this may not be exactly what you thought would be your family story. But to me, it's a family success story. And your daughter, Emily, to me, is doing a great job navigating really complicated issues. Her sexual orientation is outside of her control doing the best she can. And I, I just admire what you're doing to keep the family circle together. And and I hope in some ways this is a payday, just hearing your wonderful daughter talk honestly and openly and help so many people. And um, I don't sense a lot of anger in your daughter. <laughs> um, there may have been some angry times. Pain usually results in angers, but I'm sensing a pretty mature, thoughtful, um, healed person so maybe it's you've been your prayers and your work and Emily's work and therapy. We need Jesus and a therapist, I've always said. And to me, <laughs> to me, this is just a family success story um, all around. And just the things we hope for as parents is our families close together and learning from each other. And so, but I recognize there's probably been, like I know my role as a parent is sometimes choppy and there are things I wish I could do over, but that's okay. Um, so uh, any advice, any advice for parents of new, maybe you said some, anything else comes to mind, Emily, just advice for parents that might be listening to a podcast for the first time, either suspecting their child's LGBTQ or just learning this. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad that you asked that question because I have a lot of friends now who have teenagers. Um, friends and cousins and family members who have teenagers and um, and some of them have shared that their children have come out as LGBTQ and I think one one thing that I that I would love for parents to understand and for members of the church to understand is the the church's on LGBTQ issues um, is is difficult. It's a really difficult pill to swallow um, because you're surrounded by people who are who are dating. They're encouraged to date. They're encouraged to find someone to marry, and you're not. You're. I mean, you're not necessarily told like. No, you cannot. You absolutely cannot date, but but you're encouraged. You're encouraged to remain celibate, and um, that's a really tough pill to swallow. So, I think understanding that your child or your your fellow congregation member is um, they are allowed to receive their own personal revelation. And Richard, you've, you've already touched on this, even just during this episode, but everybody can receive their own personal revelation as far as what their path might be. 
and just have some have love and compassion and understanding. If your child decides that they want to date people of the same gender, please, please love them and support them in that choice because it's so, it's so difficult to even fathom the thought of living, living a life alone, like without, without that companionship. At least it is for me. Some people, they might be able to get, they, they might be okay. Everybody has their own path, but um, just whatever your, your child or, or the congregation member decides to do, I think just love them and, and support them. Um, that's, and, and if your child seems like, if you see a similar pattern of what I talked about at the beginning of this episode, like they make a friend and then that friendship fizzles and they seem really, really down about it. Like, listen to them, find out more about how they're feeling. Um, just also being like every once in a while, maybe reading a, a, a church article together as a family about LGBTQ church members. Make it because the, the truth is that today there are a lot more stories out there about members of the church who are LGBTQ. And it's, it's a reality that people that kids need to be aware of like this is a real thing and it's okay if you feel this way that way you know 23 year old emily doesn't feel so helpless and lost and alone that she just doesn't want to live anymore like make it an option make it okay for them to feel this way make sure that they're aware that this is a path that some people take. Obviously, you as a faithful parent, you as faithful parents, you may not want your children to to pursue the path of like deciding to marry someone of the same gender, and that's okay. What I'm saying is, make it okay for them to identify as LGBTQ. Even just that one little step can make such a big difference in somebody's life. It's a great segment, great advice. And I love that that advice, Emily, because every parent can do that. Um, You don't need to be a therapist. You don't, you just listen and try to create a safety that they open up and then they love them. That's the most consistent personal revelation that in the book that I'm, that I've published because there's a lot of stories from LDS parents and they rightly so receive personal revelation for their children. But that personal revelation is very similar to what you've just shared. At the end of the day, my job as a parent is to love. And parents are usually pretty good at that once they feel like they've sort of gotten permission from God or, or to do that. Because a lot of parents, and you may have seen that in your own parents, they hold back and they don't quite know what to do in this situation. But most parents just get to the point, my job is to love. We are part of mortality is personal agency. That's such a core part of our church teachings. My job is to honor other people's person, personal agency and just love and leave it at the Savior's feet and not 
try to determine right now your eternal standing with God, or even the idea that you might not be part of our eternal family. Yeah, you're not, you know, keeping church teachings, um, but I think we can even just say, I'm not going dis- to, I'm not going to sort of right now conclude that you're going to be outside the family circle for eternity, because I believe in our heavenly parents that want to do everything they can to get all of their children back to them. And you face unique circumstances that other people don't face. And so that's not a, a it's not sort of dismissing our doctrine. It's really owning our doctrine. Um, I still invite everybody mm-hmm. to stay all the good in the church is all the good in my life comes from living the teachings of the church and I recognize people that separate themselves from the church often live a lot of church teachings. You're having family night. <laughs> You're in a deeply mm-hmm. committed relationship. You're not on the club scene, I don't think. And um, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so, and it seems like that's the perfect environment for these two kids um, that need two committed parents. And so I think, it. you know, we're just the same human family. And you're doing a great job. We're kind of at the hour... We're at the ending time. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Emily? Um, I guess I guess I would just say, you know, this is my story, and everyone's story is different. Um, but it it's I think it's just important to remember that key component of personal revelation, um, and the ability for people to fill the spirit in, in their own way, whatever that might look like. Um, Richard, I also just want to thank you for being an, an advocate. I've read the first half of your book. Well, it's, thank you. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's, um, I remember when I stumbled across you on Facebook a few years ago, I was like, wow, who is this person that is so loving of the LGBTQ community and is still so faithful in the church. And I think that you, you, you live a very great example and your example brings a lot of hope to a lot of LGBTQ members of the church. So thank you. You're very kind, Emily. So I'm just so glad to have you on the podcast today, Emily. Um, so on behalf of, um, Rich Emily Tomkinson, T O M T O M K I N S O N, and her wife Jess. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.